Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast that explores mental health, especially for folks of color. I'm your host, Johnzel Anderson. I'm a licensed therapist and owner of Panoramic Counseling in Richmond, Virginia. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Today we're talking about chapters four and five of The Light We Carry. So the, the first of the two chapters, number four is Am I Seen? And uh, chapter five is called My Kitchen Table, which is talking about friendship. So initial thoughts, anything that jumped out at anybody? Um, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Imani. Um, so I took some notes. So I'm going to be reading off of my notes here. Um, the first thing that stood out to me was on page 90 for reference, um, when she talks about standing out and being young, it was really interesting reading this and finding out that she also, she was also like the only black person in a space, you know, full of whiteness and, you know, to experience that it's really nerve wracking, you know, so to hear her reflect off of that. And to talk about how, you know, it was just a relatable memory for me. I always stood out against, you know, my wishes as being the only Black girl in some spaces. So it was uncomfortable. So it was nice kind of reading that in the book. I'll piggyback off of that because I also highlighted a section of page 90. Uh, I wrote in the margin, tall awkwardness. So uh, Michelle talks about being, I'll just give the quote that I put. Uh, As a tall kid, I was relegated to the back of most groups singing from the last row of the third grade chorus. I was always bringing up the rear. The attention given to my height brought about a new self-consciousness in me, a slight sense of otherness. There were times when I'd cross a room fully steeped in my own awkwardness my mind fixed on one thought. I'm the tall girl headed to the back of the line. I can see now I was actually delivering myself two thoughts at once. Two messages that when combined became especially poisonous. I stand out and I don't matter, end quote. I didn't get tall until I was in college. I had like a growth spurt my freshman through sophomore year. Uh, Like I was tall, but I wasn't like six foot five tall until then. But I can definitely relate with the feeling of wanting to shrink or to not stick out. And I always feared getting tall because I was always like socially um, anxious and very poor self-esteem. So being tall literally just makes you like literally stand out uh, in front of everybody. So that resonated with me uh, as also another tall person. Uh, It's kind of crazy. I was definitely the person at the end of the line all through elementary school, all through middle school. It didn't really catch up till the boys started getting taller in like high school. But I'm like six feet, six foot one. So I'm pretty tall even now. So even now, a lot of women at work are like, oh, you're so tall. But like, you don't think about when you're a teenager, you're already feeling awkward. So then the fact that everybody tells feels the need to tell you, oh, you're so tall. It's kind of annoying. It's a pain in the butt. And then it's always, do you play basketball? Do you do this? Those are the only things you can do when you're tall and black, unfortunately, for a lot of people. Now, my my little, uh, I guess, quip that I give when people inevitably ask me the 
question of do you play basketball? Because again, tall black man, that's what I'm supposed to do, right? I respond kind of like making humor of it, but I say I would like to receive a dollar for every time I've asked that so that I don't have student loans. And it usually makes them feel uncomfortable for a minute. And I feel happy on the inside. I have a really dark sense of humor, but it's it's worked for me. No one's ever pulled a dollar out of their wallet, unfortunately. I um I like how you mentioned the quote. Um I can see now what you know that like basically when you have two thoughts at once, you know, I, I have that anxiety to where like if I'm I went to school at an HBCU. So if you're in the cafeteria, all eyes are always on you, no matter what. And if you drop a plate or if you drop something, the whole cafeteria has a collective claps for you. Thank God I wasn't the one that got, you know, it never happened to me. But that fear of like having two thoughts at once, like, oh my gosh, where did everybody go? It's so crowded in here. Please don't bump into me. If I drop my food, you know, everyone's going to clap for me. And it's sometimes like a little encouraging boost, but at the same time, it's like, come on now, it's kind of doing too much. So it's just like, I remember having that feeling. And I was like, man, is that, um, I don't know, is it fueled by anxiety or is it my fear or maybe my ADHD? I don't know. But I have that feeling. Was it meant to be encouraging that people clapped or was it kind of like to roast the person sometimes, who made a mistake? Sometimes it was done in like, you know, like we all family, like it's all right, pick it up. You got it. You know, like one of those kind of claps. But sometimes it was also like, oh, way to go. Like, look at you. Come on. You know, so it, and it also depend on who the person was. Like if it was someone everyone knew and they kind of you can kind of go by judgment and know who to do that with and who not to so sometimes it was like okay but it, I just knew it just couldn't be me okay it just couldn't be me <laughs> so continuing on in that um, section Michelle talks about the importance of role models more specifically focusing on representation uh, and there was a couple of quotes I took down on representation but she says when you look around and can't find any version of yourself out there in the wider world, when you scan the horizon and see nobody like you, you start to feel a broader loneliness, a sense of being mismatched to your own hopes, your own plans, your own strengths. You begin to wonder where and how you will ever belong, end quote. And so I think a good question there would be, who are your role models? Like from that sentiment, who are some role models that show you that you belong? Um, for me right now is um, Cheryl, I cannot remember her last name right now, but we all know. Cheryl Lee Ralph. Yes. Right now, you know, even her speech that she just did, you know, when she tells, whenever people ask her, you know, how she feels or what she has to say, she says, you are enough. You know, hearing that from her is like one of those role models for me, especially now that I have more of a variety of representation now that times have changed and doors have opened for Black women and plus-size Black women at that. So I thought that she's one of mine right now. And Mariah Carey. I, I guess for me, working in the news business, I always look to other people that look like me in that space because sometimes it's a constant battle of like how stories are covered. Um 
So a big person in our area is this uh, anchor named Don Roberts. I actually met him when I was in probably middle school, but I started working with him. He kind of remembered meeting me. So that always stuck with me. And like this having somebody in that set space that understands what you're going through. Like sometimes it's a constant battle to understand the way we're reporting things that are not necessarily inclusive to some communities. So it's always that double-edged sword of how do you handle it? And I guess if I'm looking at like famous people, I got to say Issa Rae because every time you see her, she's supporting people that look like her. It's always like, I don't care if I don't win, but if somebody that looks like me win, it's a win for us all. So I think that's a good mindset to have. So I'll piggyback off of that one. I was going to say Issa Rae first because I remember the web series she did, uh, The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl. And sometimes I like I have the playlist of that like bookmarked on my YouTube. So sometimes I'll just like go back because um, obviously I've like seen the bigger and better things she's done since then. But like go back and to see how she was able to give representation where there wasn't any using like relatively like low quality like video equipment and like, um, you know, to put together something to make people feel seen. So uh, Issa Rae is definitely one of them. And uh, more recently, um, Lene Vani, um, I don't know if you are familiar on like um, YouTube and Instagram. She has this like uh, series called Parking Lot Pimpin', um, where she'll basically like go over current events, but with humor and she'll just like roast people like who are like wrong, you know. Uh, and I actually had the opportunity to meet her um, at a live event she did in Atlanta last year. And so, um, yeah, just seeing other Black representation, but also like creative and uh, kind of like snarky, sarcastic uh, representation that kind of fits with my personality. Um, those are some role models for me. So kind of continuing on that that idea of representation uh, Michelle talks about kind of the pitfalls of not be or being in places where you don't have representation. Uh, so on page 103, she says, there's something unnerving about moving through a place and not seeing people who look like you anywhere. It's haunting, almost as if your kind has been erased from the planet completely. You may have grown up knowing your grandparents, their food, their culture, their way of speaking, but now suddenly there's no history of them. Your own reality seems banished. There are no faces like yours in the portraits lining the walls of classrooms and dining halls. The buildings you spend your days in are, named, are all named for white men. Your teachers aren't like you. Your peers aren't like you. Even on the streets of the larger town, there's hardly anyone who looks like you. And then I kind of also highlighted on page 112, she adds that, as disheartening it is, as it is, there are people in this world who are more comfortable or feel more powerful when others are made to feel isolated, broken, or unwelcome. They are happy to keep you small. So that kind of does a, a good overview of like what it really feels like to not feel represented. And she does talk about how it's not just along the lines of race, but she talks about uh, gender, um, socioeconomic status, uh, uh, education. She kind of talks about how, I mean, I, even later on, she talks about everyone has felt to feel othered or outside. So I guess my next question would be kind of discussion question would be like, have you 
you know, given this example um, that she gives, have any of y'all ever felt like, like in, in a space, like underrepresented? I think something that was really hard for me when I was younger um, was I climbed pretty fast, pretty quickly in my professional career, but I was very young. And sometimes that meant that I was either lateral or even in a chain of command above people that were older than me. And that was uncomfortable because I think we sometimes have this unspoken idea that younger equates to junior equates to inferior in that hierarchy. And I really had a hard time. um, I really had a hard time just, I'm trying to find the words to say it, uh, maintaining my authority. I never wanted to be a dictator, but I felt that I was pushed into a lot of situations where I really had to lay it down because people wanted to walk all over me. But something that I heard time and time again that really wounded me was, you'll feel differently when you're older. And it was something that I heard because I work in population health and diversity, equity, and inclusion. It was something that I heard in reference to when I thought that something would be better, when I thought that something could be improved, or when I thought that it was a fixable problem. I basically was told, like, you're too young to be jaded. And so, and that I didn't think that was fair. It doesn't really, it, it discounts that there's any sort of struggle. It discounted that I had a very hard childhood. It discounted that I had my own areas of oppression and I didn't want to sit around and play the oppression Olympics with anyone. But I just really thought that. I was suddenly discounted because I didn't fit in the group. Um, and that feeling was intensified, especially in rooms where I was the only woman, even if that wasn't something that was being said, those things, those seeds had already been planted in my head and I would feel myself shrink and shrink and shrink. But that was something that was really intense for me. And I remember this, this big argument, this one day that I had with someone who was again, lateral to me, but much older than me who said something about like, well, when you're a woman like me, and I said, what does that mean? And we really got in it. And I just, I just turned around and I said, are you a conspiracy theorist? And she said, what do you mean? And I said, do you believe that we put a man on the moon? And she said, yeah. And I said, then why wouldn't we be able to fix this for him? I just, you know, and it really, it built my confidence and yet it shattered my confidence in a lot of ways. I had a very brusque exterior, but that's not how I felt on the inside. So I always try to play devil's advocate now when I'm in meetings for the the voice that seems to be the only, because even if I don't agree with them, there might be something important in what they're trying to say. Thank you for sharing that. I guess one comment I'll have or one observation would be that there's definitely a double standard that I see, you know, with me being a male is that I could be it's male privilege, right? Like I could be assertive, like say in the same space as you, Brianna, and um, in the same job, same lateral position, I could be assertive and it will be looked at as like entrepreneurial or, um, 
innovative, if you will, but a woman in a lateral position, the perspective is you need to stay small, you need to stay in your space. And if you are assertive, just like I would be, they call you a bitch, they call you difficult, they call you uh, not a team player. I've seen that in workplaces. Well, I was going to say that I think sometimes that's our norm. And I think sometimes women can be guilty of it too. Um, like when someone tends to be a more type A leader and they're female, I've heard, oh, she's so tight. She's such a bitch. And I just say, and I try to not be um, defensive about it because I also think that people can be abrasive regardless of their gender and women can be abrasive too. So I try not to fall too much in one camp or the other, but I just try to say objectively, was she aggressive or was she assertive? Was she unfair or was she firm? Like just because maybe it's just if our mind plays shortcuts with all sorts of things, of course it would play shortcuts with that too. And I know that I, as much as I try to be equitable, I can fall into traps. We all can. And I try to always just ask that question because I think that that forces us to think about it. Thank you. And I was going to add also to what you shared when I started my, well, really when I started in the mental health field, I started working in community-based counseling when I was still in graduate school. Um, Cause I know the whole like experience curve, like you get a degree, but they want you to have like at least a year of experience to do anything with it. So I was like, well, I'm not going to be a person with an expensive degree and can't get a job. So I'm going to get experience while I'm getting the degree. But I appear very young, right? And I'm in the field of mental health. So I'm like in a position where I'm supposed to be offering like uh, feedback or insight or guidance to people who are dealing with life struggles. And something I got early on, especially working in community bases, clients were looking at me with like a baby face, you know, and they're like, what the hell do you know about life or how can you help me? And of course, when you're younger and you don't have that confidence behind you, you can get insecure. And I know Michelle talks a lot in the book about how she finds her confidence or, you know, through the different experiences she had. Uh, but one of the things I did almost to, I guess, mask or to divert attention away from my youth, I guess, was to grow facial hair. And it was interesting how people treated me different. Um, if I were to shave my beard right now, I would look like I was like 20 years old or younger, right? Um, but in order to get people to understand my value and what I was able to bring to the table, I had to kind of change myself. And, you know, like you shared, Brianna, um, when I started my own business um, or, you know, working my way up in my field, so to speak, when I opened my private practice, I was sorry about that. We all here. Can you all still hear me? Okay. You were at the, I, you cut out right before you were about to say something good, but you were telling oh. us about how, yeah, people thought you were baby yes. face and the young people, like what experience would you have? Yes. So, um, I opened my, uh, practice and I am mid twenties. I can't remember the specific age and all of the other therapists in the area were middle-aged, like 40s, 50s, 60s, white women. Uh, I didn't see any other young Black male therapist, period. So this day, like if I Google Black male therapist near me, 
I'm going to see my own website show up and maybe a few others like in the same zip code as me, which is good for business because, you know, when people are looking for that, they Google me and I'm one of a few options. But I remember early on, I would, you share office spaces, like you rent like a, a office room out of a suite of offices or something like that. And oftentimes you're around other therapists. My youth um, or being younger than them had them looking down on me. Like they, I don't really care if they take me seriously per se, because I was operating my own business, but I know that there were, I, you could see like some jealousy and I tried to, I, I didn't do things the traditional way. So like the, I guess my approach and my personality and how I went about like getting new clients and stuff like that, I guess may have been intimidating, but they also, there was definitely some jealousy because most every other client that came into the waiting area was a client coming to see me. And some of them would even pick my brain. They were like, well, how do you get so many clients? Or what is your approach to things and stuff like that? And I was just like, well, I'm just being myself. I'm offer the type of therapy that I wish I had when I was younger, you know? And it was almost looked at as I'm their competition instead of I'm just a fellow person able to provide a service. So um, to what you were saying, Brianna, I can definitely um, relate with like being a younger person in your field and the expectation of kind of staying in your place, like uh, pay your dues and don't succeed too fast, I think is kind of the sentiment you were saying. So I can definitely relate with that one. Um, I grew up... um... I'm from Charleston, South Carolina, originally, which is a very black populated area where, you know, a lot of Gullah people there. And the area I grew up in was really rough. And my mom, just similar to what Michelle Obama mentioned in the book, um, we had to move out the hood and move to a white suburb. Um, so we moved from South Carolina all the way up to Southwest Virginia. And if you're not familiar, with Southwest Virginia, it's all predominantly white and racist and traditionally racist. Um, so I went to a, I was the only black girl in all of my classes from second grade until high school. So I faced a lot of racism. I endured it at a very young age. So I could relate to the entire chapter of everything that she said. It nailed it right on, like it was perfect. But um, I grew up in an area that didn't believe Black women had voices. We weren't allowed to exist. We weren't allowed to speak up. We weren't allowed to do leadership programs like how I did, like the debate club. Parents would rally against me and Anything that you could think of happening in the 1960s was happening after Obama got elected, you know? So you see the signs, you see the um, the caricatures, you see, you deal with teachers who don't know how to deal with racism, playing any kind of whatever in classes and being okay with it because it's their norm. You know, you experience a lot of, the right word is just racism, you know? So I, I can just relate to all of that. And that's why I went to an HBCU. So Armani, I also went to an HBCU. I went to North Carolina A&T. Um, Aggies, of course. Uh, 
But then for grad school, I went to Syracuse, which is back to predominantly white. So you go there, it's kind of like a a culture shock almost from being around this population of you're never going to be around that many successful black people that are trying to do the same thing you are at one time in one place. So to go out into the world and be back into how everyday society is, it can be kind of like a little much. So everybody is looking at you like, oh, you represent all black people. So if you do one thing wrong, that means all black people are like this. They do that. They do this. It's can I touch your hair? What are you doing? How do you guys cook? All this other stuff that gets in it. And we're supposed to just be okay with it. We're supposed to just accept it. And people are like, oh, why are you so defensive? If I came up to you and was just like, oh, can I touch your hair? How would you feel about it? You probably give me the same look at, that I'm giving you right now. You know, I used to get all the time when kids used to come up to me and put their skin against my skin during the spring or summertime and say, hey, I hope I can get almost as dark as you. You know, you hear the microaggressions. And even now working in corporate, where the times are changing, but it's not changing fast enough. People still feel like we have to educate them on how to treat us and how, you know, just basically how to be a regular person. It's difficult, but I know exactly how you felt. And it's not easy because if you do the slightest thing that they don't agree with, they label you as aggressive or mean, standoffish, especially if you're shy and you're socially awkward as a Black woman, you're not given that space of, I just want to chill in a corner and listen to my music because that's just me. I don't feel like I always have to socialize, but if you don't socialize, think think you're, like what Rihanna said, a bitch. So. I can relate to both of y'all whenever you said that I felt it. I just, um, I have a general question and if no one wants to answer it, I think that's okay too. It's just something that I think about. Um, so I am a white woman and so I don't in many spaces stand out in that way, but I definitely had to chuckle kind of a sad little chuckle at what you were saying, especially Monty. Because when I was dealing with those things, it was in very far Southwest Virginia, like real true far Southwest Virginia bordering the counties that I covered, uh, North Carolina, Tennessee, West Virginia, like the Virginia that people don't know is Virginia. And um, while I do think that there are some racist tendencies down there, there's just some ist tendencies down there too. Age ist, um, very... uh, they're very LGBTQ plus anti many of those ideals. And it's not everyone, but it's enough that it can feel suffocating. Um, but to what you were saying about um, kids wanting to compare their skin tone or hair, I think that's, that's tricky. Again, I don't think I see how it's a microaggression. I'm not saying it's right. But then when I look at, I think about that particular situation being in that isolated community and where all of that ist grows, how do you, um, and again, maybe you don't have an idea, but you just seem really intelligent. So I'm just asking for your perspective, no pressure if you don't have an answer and maybe this is open to the group too, but how do you, um, I guess allow, and maybe this is more for young children to explore and understand that difference exists and that it's okay and that it's a beautiful thing. Um, 
while also explaining that that's not okay? Like, how do we balance curiosity with when people should know better? Like, just an idea. And um, just curious to your thought. But again, no pressure. No, that's a great question. I actually worked at a church daycare in Southwest Virginia. And if you know, it was a Pentecostal church, lovely church, nothing wrong, you know, church, but this church had very strong views. And the only way you could bring your child into that church is if your parents also have those strong views. And they were very against the LGBTQI plus community. They were very against um, they are, they, you can't wear pants. If you're a woman, you have to do certain things. It was along those lines. So I had a kid come in and bless his heart. He didn't know better. He came up to me and says, your skin is darker. And I was like, yes, that's true. And kids make observations and that's important. And I was like, yes, you're very correct. You know, I, I, you know, I told him like, that's right. That's true. My skin is darker. Your skin is lighter and my skin is darker. And he was so curious. And so I knew then that he's never been explained the differences in skin tone. Maybe he's never seen it, you know. So um, as his daycare caretaker, you know, and also as a person, I explained it to him. I says, my skin or my family come from a different type of, you know, I kind of explained why my skin was darker, why his skin was lighter. Um, and so some things can be taught at a very young age and, um, kids understand that they know, Hey, you're different from me. That's okay. As long as I respect you and you respect me, we're cool. We can play games or maybe one day they hate each other. But at the same time, they're not going to say, I hate you because you're black. They're going to say, I hate you because you took my toy and I didn't understand why, you know? Um, most of the racism that I experience, and I not to say the I'm gonna compare my hand to yours is racism, but it's a stem of it. Because at that age, you know that your skin will never be mine. Your skin could not duplicate mine. You knew there was a difference, and you thought you could use my skin tone to find some way to relate to me. When really you could have just said, you know, Imani, I just like your skin tone. You know, sometimes you don't need to compare. Sometimes you can just appreciate. And those kids never ever appreciated my skin tone. But when they had the chance to, they chose to use it as a mockery, you know? And it was their ignorance because they've never been taught better. They don't know better, but they should know better because at a young age, you are taught to know what's right and what's wrong. And I feel as if the things that I experienced when girls would bring their arm up to mine, they're not saying I'm beautiful. You know, they're using my skin tone to validate theirs. And so that's where I'm looking at it. And that's how it could be a microaggression. It's not meant to be harmful, but in the end, in the long run, it is. And so um, when I would correct my friends and the people in my space, 
because you're not, you know, if it's not right, it's not right. And I'm going to say something. They understood because I said I'm not comfortable with it. And that was it. No questions asked because they wouldn't understand and they would never understand. But as long as I said I don't like it, if they all they had to do was not do it again. So and that's another thing I make sure my friends knew. You may not understand why I say don't do these things because it's not for you to understand. This is me. This is my culture. And I don't have to share it all, you know, but I am also Gullah and we gatekeep my culture. So um, my friends and the people around, for an instance, this is another example. They used to call this one girl, she was new, a tree trunk to mock her skin tone. You know, so those, and that was, it was just one of those things you hear as a young child and it's like, no way are y'all that racist at this age. And you know what you're doing because you hear your parents do it and you like it and you build a community off of it. Not saying everyone was like that, but when the population is so small and so tight knit and everyone's family and everyone has to go to church together, and that one church has one belief, that's what you're gonna be, that's what the community is gonna be like. And it made some towns, um, excuse my voice, I'm sorry. But that's why sundown towns still exist in Southwest Virginia today. And so- Thank you for saying that. I'm gonna take some of your verbiage next time I try to explain that, um, especially the phrases that you said about validation, because that's, That's something that can be hard for me to explain because curiosity can be natural, but intent is everything. So thank you for um, stating that so thoroughly. I took some notes so that I can phrase things better next time that comes up. Thanks. I love that. And I found a, a quote that I highlighted in this section that I think ties all of that together beautifully. So no one can make you feel bad if you feel good about yourself. End quote. So it's short, pithy, but it does the trick, I think. And when I read it as a standalone quote in this section, I was like, that's a nice little quote, but it it didn't tie as well. But as you're sharing, you know, that that great question and then the answer that was given, I thought, what a great summary there. So later on in the chapter, M- Michelle goes on to kind of get to a level of acceptance. She says, you know, in my own head, in real time, and for my own benefit, I could rewrite the story of not mattering. I am tall, and that's a good thing. I am a woman, and that's a good thing. I am Black, and that's a good thing. And I am myself, and that's a very good thing, end quote. Any other like uh, like quotes or anything that jumped out at you, y'all about that chapter, uh, chapter number four? This is something just really quick, and I don't know if anybody else pays attention to it, but it was like, when they cast a black little mermaid and so many people were up in arms about it, but representation matters. Like little kids want to see themselves being doctors, lawyers, superheroes, mermaids, and every kid should be able to get that. We need to see more Asian people. We need to see more black people, more Hispanic people. And this is not to say that white people should not be taking up those spaces. It should be a coexistence. And I think sometimes little kids don't get to see that. So they're just told, you know, you're going to be nothing when you grow up, you're going to be this, that, and not positive thing. And that goes a long way. 
I just thought that was the most incredulous thing too, because there was no argument against it that I thought was valid. It's a mermaid. It's a mermaid. Like (laughs) it wasn't someone that existed in history that we can point out. It's a mermaid. Nobody's seen one. They allegedly live in the sea. I appreciate that you brought that up. And that was, I just could not stop laughing when people were getting upset about that because it was just like, again, a sad laugh, but incredulous. It's it's a mermaid. We don't even know if they're real. I like to think so based on my four-year-old self, but I know that realistically, that's probably not true. I really do love that example of representation, uh, obviously, so that little Black girls can see another example, because the last example we really had was when Brandy was Cinderella in the 90s, you know, so we're getting this next wave in generations uh, version of that. But with that is also more representation because she's like the first Disney princess that is wearing locks. So and that's another level of representation that uh, even for black people, it's becoming very much more mainstream. In just the past few years, it's normal to wear locks and it's um, becoming more well represented. But that, you know, they didn't put a black Ariel there and make her wear just like a red wig or something, but that she can wear her natural hair and that is uh, its own standard of beauty. Um, Representation definitely does matter. And I guess one more thing before we go into uh, chapter five, and I read this in her memoir, uh, Becoming, this this, um, story, but uh, she talks about kind of the naysayers and uh, how the school counselor basically told her, you're not Princeton material. Um, She goes more in depth into that story in her memoir. But the uh, part that I uh, quoted was, um, I was able to quickly uh, convert my hurt over the guidance counselor's remark into fuel. So remember that motif that she had about rocket fuel. I became triply motivated to prove her wrong. My life became a kind of reply. Your your limits aren't mine, end quote. Um, And I really like that. I, I like that even when you lack representation, even when you're in spaces that where you're, you stand out or you're an anomaly, we can move forward with the self-assurance that just because they think that that should limit me, I don't have to take that on myself. And I think all of us have shared examples where we were able to either through our behaviors, our words, our actions to say, your limits aren't mine and to keep going forward. So I thought that was worth mentioning because the school counselor told her she wasn't Princeton material, but she went to Princeton and did great. And, you know, now we're reading her book. So there's that. Um, But moving on, uh, chapter five is titled My Kitchen Table. Uh, I really like that visual for uh, the chapter on friendship. So as we transition into that chapter any any takeaways any thoughts um from the chapter on friendship i like how it mentioned sometimes we have to let certain friends go or at least diminish our reliance on them and i thought that was very relatable because this chapter talks about how it's hard to make friends as an adult especially after a pandemic you know, and as an adult with social anxiety, sometimes you don't want to make friends. Sometimes you're cool, you just yourself. And so that's what I could relate to is because sometimes I had to let some friends go because if you're not 
you know, some people do too much. And you need to have friends that uplift you and also kind of make sure you want to stay not the same, but get better. So you have to let people go. And it's crazy because it's like, well, I'm not the only one. So that was my takeaway from that. And for those listening to the podcast, uh, definitely check out the um, book club that we did last month on in December because Brianna shared a great example about how relationships can be viewed in the idea of like a museum and how different people um, might be on display temporarily or they might be archived or uh, they may have a more prominent space. And that was a really good example of how friendships and relationships work in our lives. They're not always permanent. Something else, um, because I'm still dealing with that friendship breakup that we were talking about in the last book club too. And that analogy I've kind of clung to just because it is still really sad. Um, But I think the point that Michelle makes too is that, you know, it's, it's okay to move on, but that doesn't mean that there's not a grief with it. And I think sometimes when we're telling people to like move on, whether it be romantic love, professional relationship, et cetera, it's like, they weren't good for you. Just get over it. That doesn't mean that it's not painful. That doesn't mean that I want to slam the door. If, if nothing else, I take a lot of comfort that I screw up. I'm very human, but I try to do everything in a manner that's very kind. No one can accuse me of malice. Um, and so that was something that I really clung to when I was reading this too, is that it's okay that it's still hard. And I am more soft-hearted for thinking it's hard and that's an okay thing to be. The first quote I had in that the chapter about friendship, she talks about how, quote, you're crazy if you think you get to make up all the rules. What mattered was that we just kept showing up in closeness, in commitment, in compromise, and even in fatigue, end quote. So um, in that one sentence, she talked about a lot of important ingredients to a supportive and healthy friendship. And she doesn't, uh, in the different examples of friendship she shares throughout the chapter, she doesn't make it out, like, she talks about how different friendships serve different roles during different times and how they have different like features and characteristics. Uh, and I thought that was a, a good visual for that. I like how um, she kind of checked herself whenever it came to, am I being a good friend right now? Am I emotionally available to be a friend to someone else? And there's a quote in here that I highlighted. It says, no one person, no one relationship will fulfill your every need. Not every friend can offer you safety or support on every day. Not everyone can or will show up precisely when or how you need them to. And I thought that was a word because sometimes we need to know that not everyone is accessible at a snap of our fingers. You know, our friends have lives and they're not always going to be there all the time so we have to understand that and acknowledge that they're also dealing with their own things too so I thought that was really nice to read I also thought it was kind of a callback to build on Imani's point um the chapter right before the one 
And I don't know if you all discussed this last week because I wasn't here, but the um, friend, the friend's husband who greets himself every single morning and the idea that we have to be our own friend too in all of this. Um, But that's kind of what I was thinking about when I was reading this section about someone can't be there for your every need. I think it's important not to be in codependent relationships. I think it's important to have diversity in your friend group, but also I have to be my own friend. Definitely. And we, I think it was Nita that pointed that out uh, the last in in the last meeting, but the Hey Buddy friend that she talked about, um, that was, that was an example that we all really enjoyed. And it was kind of a takeaway for all of us that we do have to be our own best friend in a way. Uh, in order to be able to also be that for other people and receive that from other people. But um, speaking of what you just said, Brianna, um, I highlighted a part where she talks about how her friendships complement her relationship with her significant other, um, because you had mentioned that we shouldn't be codependent. And so, um, quote, Barack and I have never tried to be each other's everything in life to single-handedly shoulder the entire load of care that each of us requires. I don't expect him to want to hear every last one of my stories or thoughts or to sort through my every worry with me or to be solely responsible for my day-to-day entertainment and happiness. Nor do I want to have to do all of that for him. Instead, we distribute the load. We have other forms of emotional rescue and relief. We are carried by a wide array of friendships, some his, some mine, some ours together, and we do our best to help carry our friends, end quote. I like when she said that, and it also kind of did serve as a daily reminder of that you do need to have designated friends for designated things. Like, I'm not going to go to my friend who, you know, for my one friend for this, when I can go to another friend has, who may offer better advice. You know, that's why they say keep an open community, keep a village of people you know will support you in all aspects of your life. I think one thing that really stood out to me is her encouraging people to still go out and try to, like, make friends, even though we're stuck in this digital age where, especially after COVID, everybody was using devices and it, it wasn't the same thing it wasn't like you could just go and, and hug people anymore so that took some of the humanism out of it but also as somebody that has anxiety especially in social settings it can be intimidating especially when I'm standing in line all of a sudden somebody wants to make small talk because in my head it's like panic going off because now I have to adjust to people wanting to talk to me and I am my I think I put on this face where it will make nobody want to talk to me I try to make myself look mean just so nobody strikes up a conversation and then people start talking to me and they're like, you're one of the nicest people I've ever met. And I'm just like, yeah, but it's a defense mechanism to this try to make people think that I don't want to talk. So people don't put me in that situation. But at the same time, we have to be bold and strong enough to actually make these efforts because let's face it, people with friendships live longer. They have a better quality of life. They're able to just overall be a little bit happier because you know it's people that are rooting for you it's not just you in it by yourself um statistically it's proven that people who are actually a little bit happier are the ones that are going to go out and do some of the more um difficult work in their communities 
it, it's people who, who can fall back on that versus those like we think that people are unhappy. So they'll want to jump in and make change, but you actually have to feel some satisfaction in order to go out and take that step. Yeah, I think it's the sentiment of you have to take a little bit of risk in order to get the reward. And I can definitely relate with the, um, because there are times where, you know, I'm also, while I do a very social job, I'm a, I'm a, I believe a classic introvert. Um, I'm very much a homebody. I can, I thrived during the pandemic. Um, I went from, you know, I'm a therapist, so I was seeing everybody in person up until that point, and then it switched completely online. Now that was a hard transition for me because I do like the energy exchange of being with people. Um, but as far as like being at home, working from home, I did pretty well with that. I think now as we go back, you know, we started going back out and into society and stuff as I, I see so much more social anxiety because, uh, and we talked about this in the last uh, meeting, but uh, people's skills were kind of rusty, you know. Um, I remember going to a mall for the first time, which I hated malls before the pandemic, but I, I had to go into a mall. I, I think I had to pick up something or something like that from a store. And the overwhelming cascades of anxiety that I felt that felt nothing like any social anxiety I'd never felt because it was the first time I was in public after being isolated for over a year. Um, and many people are still recovering from that. It's it's an ongoing uh, collective trauma that uh, we're dealing with. But um, to the sentiment of what y'all just shared, she specifically talks about young people. Um, and I know Nita had mentioned the technology. So this little section I'm going to share um, was uh, I was I was I highlighted all over it, but I was glad she said it because as a therapist who primarily works with like adolescents and young adults, um, I see a lot of this and it's a big concern. Um, so anyway, quote, nowadays, when I'm talking to young people, I'll often hear them express fear or hesitation about exactly this moment in a new friendship, that hinge point when you make the move from nice to meet you to, hey, let's hang out. They'll say it feels weird and awkward to pursue a potential friend, to ask somebody to have coffee or to get together outside of work or school, or try talking face-to-face -face with someone they've only known online. They worry about appearing too eager, thinking it makes them seem desperate or uncool. They are afraid to take that risk, worried about rejection. Their fears, no surprise, become their limits this way, and the numbers seem to suggest that the limits are real. According to a 2021 survey, one-third of American adults reported that they have fewer than three close friends. 12% said they have none at all, end quote. doesn't end on the warm fuzzies of where I stopped that quote, but there, there is a collective kind of angst and a, you know, I shouldn't put myself out there because I'll be perceived as desperate or, you know, and then we find ourselves around a bunch of people who are also kind of you know, socially awkward or anxious and things like that. I, um, you see me wearing these like over ear headphones, right? These are strategic because if I'm traveling and I'm in a lift or on a subway or something like that, these are my big ass headphones that tell people don't talk to me. Whereas I do try 
sometimes to be present and intentional about having my phone put away in a bag or something like that and to approach the discomfort of, say, standing in a line or asking somebody somewhere like where a particular place might be in a mall or um, in a center or something like that just to, instead of depending on my screen all the time to still engage with other people, it, it's uncomfortable, but I know I have to put myself out there because I very well could shut the world out with my big headphones, right? And never speak to people. But uh, I try to navigate a little bit of both depending on how I'm feeling. And each day is a little bit different, so. And uh, I think sometimes too, social media skews us to think that everybody else's life is perfect, right? So you're looking on all these people and they post the happiest vacation picture. They show them getting a new car, buying a house, but they never sense to focus on like, oh, I had a bad day. Like I was behind on my mortgage payment this month. I'm stressed about it. You're never going to see that posted. So when things go wrong in your own life, you're like, is it just me that go through this or everybody else seems like they have it all figured out. And I'm just over here still trying to figure life out. My favorite quote and the most difficult thing to live by is comparison is the thief of joy. And I'm not about to shit on social media because it is a tool. You know, Michelle likes to talk about our tools, right? Uh, And she even says that smartphones are a powerful tool. Social media is a powerful tool. However, social media for the most part is monetized via the attention economy. And so I know they've done like pilot um experiments with like a likeless instagram i think it was done in australia maybe somewhere where they took the like button away and it was basically like pictures and comments right and i don't know what the outcomes of that are but when i heard about it i was like that would be really cool if we had some sort of like social media where engagement had to be real engagement and i even do that sometimes too i try to not double tap. Instead, I'll try to like, if I want to say that I love something, I'll like comment a green heart because green is my favorite color instead of just double tapping it to just do that extra step of, Hey, I'm engaging with this. I I want you to know that this was cool Or, or leave a comment, but it, as far as the comparison stuff, it really is they're designed, they're designed to, to monetize the attention economy and, we can we can get lost in the sauce with oh people are posting the highlight reel and the really special things and you know i think she said all you have to do is like um take a dip into social media to immediately feel overwhelmed by how perceivably well everybody else is doing it's definitely something that takes some some boundaries and I certainly haven't mastered it. Has any, does any of y'all do any of y'all have like anything that works for you or um, any sort of like guardrails that help you with navigating like technology and social media when it comes to like comparison and stuff? I put my phone on do not disturb. And I know that sounds like a little thing, but that means that I don't get the notifications until I want to open it and look at them. And I didn't realize how much it was interrupting my life until I took it away. Um, And at first it was hard. And that's when you realize, oh, you have a legitimate addiction. But it's helped me um, a lot. And the good thing about Do Not Disturb is you can choose what gets through, right? So I can choose like 
Um, for example, I had a family member that was incarcerated. I knew when that number was coming in, like I wanted to be able to get that call. They don't always have phone time. I can pull that one off. But I didn't realize just how much time I was spending on social media until I pulled off Do Not Disturb. And I thought about those hundreds of notifications are all the time that I was looking at my phone during the day. Maybe it's just for a second, but that was, um, it made me sad and it made it a lot easier to make that change. And I think it's contributed to a much more mentally happy, mentally um, healthy and happy state. Um, my social medias are my tools. So anything that I see on my timelines on Twitter, I don't ever use Instagram, but if I do use Instagram, I use it literally just to look at people and things that I can relate with, things that look like me. So I'm not influenced by anything that's not me. The things that I see are the things that I, the content that I'm looking for. So like TikTok, I utilize that. Everything on there matches exactly what I'm looking for. So I don't see anything as like a distraction. In fact, I feel like I learn more from my tool because I have discernment and I know like, okay, that's not real. I'm not invested into things that don't feed into me the way I want to be fed. If that makes sense. I'm not going up there to look at, you know, the next celebrity couple. I'm not about to watch them fight. I'm not, I'll block. Block, mute, delete, remove, privatize my accounts. I'm in control of my social media. The things that I see, I'm in control. I won't know about it unless I go out of my way to go find it. And if I see something I don't like, blocked. Doesn't matter who you are. I might tell my own family that. <laughs> because the things that I see, I can't take it back. If I waste five minutes of my life, I can't get that back. So you're not, I'm not going to fill it with something that's not or could potentially hurt me. Um, I know my tics. I know the things that trigger me. I'm, I stay aware of that. I utilize meeting words on my social media accounts. If I see something or see someone react to someone I, in a way I don't like, I will block them before they could even get to me because it's just what I do. The things that I see on my Twitter can be crazy. You can see a lot of things that are normalized in society today, like a dead body on social media. It's normal. And it's not right. And that's why when we go to the mall, we're paranoid because we're out in open war zone space. We're not comfortable where we are usually at in home. So I make sure my social media isn't filled with real-time violence and negativity. So I greatly appreciate that. There's a couple other um I guess themes or sentiments that she mentioned in the the chapter on uh, friendship. I wrote down vulnerability. She talks about trust issues and expectations. So we got vulnerability, trust issues, and expectations. The uh, vulnerability is a given. Uh, she gives some some good nuggets on how you basically have to be curious. You have to almost confess to somebody, hey, I'm curious about you. And I want, I feel that being around you would feel good to me. Uh, and that it could be mutual, right? I like her way of 
illustrating that. The trust issues part, the quote is, she gives some, uh, I guess, statistics. So she says, research has shown that loneliness actually can compound on itself. A lonely brain becomes hypertuned to social threats, which can lead us to isolate further. Disconnection from others makes us more susceptible to conspiratorial and superstitious thinking. And this, in turn, can leave us mistrustful of those who are not like us, which, of course, becomes another way of getting stuck, end quote. If Michelle Obama didn't just um, break down trust issues, social anxiety, and rumination all in a couple of sentences, I don't know what that is, uh, other than what I just shared, because it, it hit, it made sense, I understood it. I don't even have to give commentary because it is what it is. But does anybody have any thoughts on that sentiment? I think we can kind of relate it back to the other chapter we were reading where um, she kind of says, like, it's harder to be racist or against somebody in person, right? If you're faced with seeing somebody in person and having being able to kind of let your guard down a little bit, you're going to find that you probably have more in common with this person than you thought by this maybe based on something you saw online. So I think sometimes people, and I think people see this a lot when it comes to social dating and like dating apps, it's so many like opportunities to meet people, right? So people are going to be more picky. They're going to overlook more people. They're going to give themselves like, oh, this person isn't cute enough. This person doesn't have enough degrees. But if you meet that person in person, chances are you're not going to be that harsh. So I think sometimes technology is to our detriment and the fact that it allows us to be more isolated and more picky than we probably would be if we didn't have that access. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I really like how she said that, like, that that was real so the title of the chapter was the kitchen table so to kind of wrap up this chapter i'm curious on you know because for me to like think of it uh of like okay it's like a, a kitchen table where you have people that gather and they have their own roles and you know unique things that they bring to the table i know for and i'll share mine first and then i'll kind of open it up to y'all but I guess I got to thinking about it and I was like, my kitchen table has been evolving um, over the past six months or so. There's some like people who show up to every meal, right? But I have some some new people um, and I like how Michelle Obama talks about how at her table, there are some older people that kind of serve as a mentor to her, but she also has younger people that she serves as a mentor to, but also that kind of keep her fresh, if you will, like uh, to not be so like disconnected from like the younger people. And so I like the picture that she paints of like uh, multiple generations. I feel like my personal uh, kitchen table, again, it's a small table and I like it that way. But more recently in my life, I have um, kind of stumbled into a the role of being a mentor to somebody who reminds me a lot of myself at their age, uh, very similar like background experiences, stuff like that. And it's truly very like rewarding. And so I, I like the picture she paints of like, she has people that kind of like pour into her. She has people that are just like that she kicks it with. But she also has people that she like gives back to and guides herself. So uh, I guess the question I have for y'all, I gave kind of my example. How is your current kitchen table situation? 
My kitchen table consists of all of my friends who are now my family from when I was at VSU. Everyone that I took that walk to cook out with, you know, we've seen each other for better or for worse. I married one of them, you know, so it's like my kitchen table is everyone that we do yearly cookouts with. Like we're old heads. We still talk and laugh like every day. You know, my community is small and tight knit of like maybe four or five of us, but we stay together like family. Um, I guess if I had to kind of define my my table, so to speak, it's like maybe a solid two people that are always going to be there. I know no matter what, I can depend on them. If I need to call them at like three o'clock in the morning as I'm getting ready to go to work because something is bothering me, they might not get it right then, but as soon as they see it, they're going to get right back to me. Um, I know I've, I've been like letting some new people in, but I'm like cautiously optimistic, I guess, about letting these new people in. I mean, the tension seemed good and it's like taking that risk, right? Like, and I, I talked to John Zell about this earlier. Like sometimes I avoid taking the risk because I'm like, then there's no rejection if I don't take the risk. So it's kind of like a self-defeating preservation method that needs to be worked on. And I, I'm aware, but like you kind of let some people in and sometimes you're like, man, that was a mistake. So you beat yourself up about it for a while. But I guess my problem is expecting everybody to handle things the way I handle everybody's not going to be a friend like I am everybody's not going to show up like I am so I have to learn to not hold that against myself or them because we're just in different spaces right now and you can't let everybody sit at your kitchen table so I was going to say I can relate to that so much like a lot and it makes me I don't see red flags anymore I see pink flags and the second I see a pink flag you're cut I'm sorry I can't do it because I can't, I'm in such a good space right now where I'm in my own zone. I can't afford to feel like I'm going back three steps to deal with someone who's not mentally mature or on the right mindset level because I'm, and I hate to say social media, but I go and I see a tweet. I'm like, why would that be a rational thought? And then that's when I'm like, mm, see, that's why I'm good on my people because we are already on the same level. We know that's not, that's wild, you know? So that's why I, I, I can relate to that. It's like a defense mechanism. And that's why I keep my face. I can make a friend no problem, but it's just, will I stay consistent enough to keep up with you if I feel like you can't serve me because I know I can serve you as a friend. It's like, are you really a solid person? Are you wholesome? You have to protect your energy um, when you're considering allowing other people at your table. Protecting your energy is huge. So I'll conclude the chapter on friendships with this one last quote. Life has shown me that strong friendships are most often the result of strong intentions. Your table needs to be deliberately built, deliberately populated, and deliberately tended to end quote. So next week, we are going to be back here same time. Uh, we're going to discuss chapters six and seven. So the next two chapters, I believe the next chapter is about her 
romantic relationships. Uh, probably going to talk more about her marriage and stuff like that. So um, I know that that has been a big one that has been like quoted and like little interviews and stuff like that. So I'm actually looking forward to getting into that one. But anyway, thank you so much, y'all, for joining me again um, and for working through this book with me. Um, I look forward to seeing y'all back here next week. Thank you for listening. Before you go, consider supporting this podcast in some of the following ways. You can buy me a coffee with the link in this episode show notes. You can leave me a five-star review wherever you're listening to this episode. You can follow this show in your favorite app to be notified of new episodes. And finally, you can subscribe by email with the link in this episode show notes. Thank you in advance for your support, and I'll see you next time.